0: So in study 12 of our Understanding Paul series, we're going to be looking at the subject of what Paul says about the Holy Spirit. What Paul says about the Holy Spirit. And he had quite a lot to say on the subject, so it's going to be a matter of two studies, uh, not just one. But our particular focus in study one will be the gifts of the Spirit Now, what Paul said about the Holy Spirit in both Romans and Ephesians, we've largely covered it already in previous studies. But he has the most to say on this subject in his first letter to the Corinthians. His first letter to the Corinthians. So it would be good if you would like to to turn there, specifically chapter 12 and 14. We're going to be looking at particularly chapter 12. Now, he had most to say on this subject in his letter to the Corinthians because the situation there in the church could be described as charismatic chaos. Charismatic chaos. The gifts of the Spirit were certainly in evidence in their midst. That wasn't the problem. What was the problem was this, that due to their immaturity, which he talked back about in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, the way that the gifts of the Spirit were being manifested and other related issues to that was causing confusion and upset. So there was plenty of activity going on in that area, but not a lot of order. And we've seen how important order was to Paul when we've just done the previous two studies on the church. You see, Paul wants them to enjoy the liberty that the Holy Spirit brings, but not to mistake it for license to do as they please. He wants them to realize that the privilege of manifesting the gifts brings huge responsibility. And he wants them to be sensitive, sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is doing and not allow the flesh to creep in, not allow the flesh to creep in. Now surprisingly perhaps, when we look at this chapter, Paul doesn't offer any explanation about the gifts. He just gives a list of them. Neither does he give any guidance on how to use them, except for tongues and prophecy, nor does he give any indication of what needs to happen before a person can manifest them. Of course, you see, what Paul is really interested here is how the gifts reflect the love and grace of the Holy Spirit. The gifts reflect the love and grace of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul declares that the Holy Spirit provides a variety a variety of gifts for the benefit of all believers. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, you'll see that it says, and I quote, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Now, the word that Paul uses here for these gifts is charis, marta. And that's the word he uses in verse 4 and in verse 31. Charis, marta. Now, charis, marta is an appropriate term as it starts with the Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And that Greek word actually means grace. It means grace. So these are grace gifts. This reflects and emphasises that the gifts are freely given to benefit the believers, none of whom deserves this. The gifts are indeed an act of grace. They're not merited any more than salvation is merited. The gifts of the Spirit are gifts of grace. They are grace gifts. We don't deserve that the Holy Spirit does this, but he does it by his grace, for the edification of the church, as we'll see. Now, the word that Paul uses for gifts in verse 1 of chapter 12 is different. The word he uses there is pneumaticoi. Pneumaticoi, P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-I, pneumaticoi, to refer to the gifts. And in verse 1, I quote, now, about the gifts of the spirit, and the word he uses there, pneumaticoi. Now, pneumaticoi, as you will have realised, starts with the word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, from which, of course, we get pneumatic and such words. And that is the Greek word for spirit. So this emphasises, when he uses pneumaticoi, it emphasises that the gifts come from the Spirit. And in verse 7, he says they are, quote, a manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is the source. The Spirit is the source of the gifts. And how they are manifested is down to him. It's not down to us, it's down to him. And Paul mentions the fact that the gifts are given by the Spirit several times in chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. Believers are not the source of the gifts, nor does a believer have a particular gift. The gifts are not residential. The gifts are given by the Spirit as he chooses. Believers are merely the channels. Believers are channels through whom the gifts are manifested by the Spirit as he pleases. So we read in verse 11, quote, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. He distributes them as he determines. And in Acts 19.11 we read, and I quote, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Now, here's another interesting point to notice. Nor are the gifts given in response to our prayers or requests. So, you wouldn't be in the congregation and say, Lord, I think we need a word of knowledge at this point, or or whatever. We might think that, but that's not how it it happens. They're given as the Spirit chooses and decides, so that his purposes might be fulfilled and not ours. So that's some important points there to realise that the Holy Spirit is the source. And the Holy Spirit decides how they're given, through whom they're given, why they're given. So all of it is down to the Holy Spirit not down to us, although we are used as channels through whom the Holy Spirit manifests these gifts. Now, not only was the issue of the gifts of the Spirit causing confusion and disorder in their worship meetings, it was also splitting the church. And of course, sad to say, this issue still continues to split the church today. Apparently, there was widespread ignorance about this topic, which is why Paul addresses it. So looking back at verse 1, now about the gifts of the Spirit, I do not want you to be uninformed. I do not want you to be uninformed. So these things were happening, but there was widespread ignorance about it. So Paul explains that these gifts were given by God to unify to edify and to minister. To unify, to edify, and to minister to the body of believers. And also, therefore, sequential to that is it would enable the church to function more effectively. Now, in Corinth, they were having the opposite effect. And that was the trouble. They were having the exact opposite effect of that. They were not unifying and edifying or ministering. They were having the opposite effect because these gifts had become status symbols. They'd become status symbols of spirituality. And I say, speaking from my own experience, if we're not careful, they can also become so today those being used to manifest the gifts, especially those who were ministering in tongues, considered themselves to be spiritually superior to the rest of the congregation. And you can imagine how well that was going down. So this had become a very divisive issue in the church. So Paul writes to counter this attitude of superiority that's developed. And to do that, he begins by drawing a contrast between the Corinthians' past situation and their present situation. So verses 2 to 3, we read, and I quote, "'You know that when you were pagans, "'somehow or other you were influenced "'and led astray to dumb idols.'" Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying there is that whereas they used to worship dead, silent gods, now they follow the living God, who actually does speak to us. Whereas they used to be led astray, now they are led by the Spirit. And Paul emphasises that all, all, everyone who confess Jesus is Lord have the Spirit within them, not just those who minister in the gifts of the Spirit. So therefore, those who do not manifest the gifts of the Spirit are not inferior. They are not inferior to those who do. So that's why he's setting that out at the start, because of this superiority attitude that had got into the church and was dividing it between the sort of people who minister in the gifts of the Spirit people who don't. Now, Paul points out that in the matter of giftings, there is an overlapping. There's an overlapping between the natural and the supernatural. So we read in verses 5 and 6, quote, There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So Paul is saying that God, by his Spirit, uses our natural gifts. God by His Spirit uses our natural gifts. And as we submit them to God, He anoints them by His Spirit. And the result of that is that they become more powerful in His service and more effective in the work of the kingdom, way beyond what their impact would have been if they were not anointed. So, in that sense, and in that sense only, our natural gifts, anointed by the Spirit, become spiritual gifts. Now, Paul himself is an excellent example of this. He was a naturally gifted scholar before his conversion. After it, the Spirit empowered and anointed his natural abilities to have maximum effect for the work of the kingdom. Now, Paul gives lists of examples of such abilities being anointed in this way. If you look at verse 28, helping others and administration. And then in Romans 127 to 8, he adds serving, encouraging, contributing to the needs of others, leading and being merciful. These are abilities anointed in this way so they become spiritual abilities or spiritual gifts, not to be confused with gifts of the Spirit. I'm not playing semantics there. There is a difference. And Paul even includes celibacy as a gift. He includes celibacy. Look at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. He includes celibacy as a gift that can be anointed for use in God's kingdom, as it was with him. Paul also speaks about specific ministries in the church which people have been anointed to carry out. And he mentions those down in verse 28 and also in Ephesians 4, verse 11. And these specific ministries which people have been anointed to carry out are apostles to establish churches, Prophets, to speak out God's word, to foretell what God is saying to the church. Evangelists, to communicate the gospel. Pastors, to shepherd the flock. Teachers, to ground people in the faith through doctrine. And people anointed in the ministry of miracles and healings, who are used frequently by the Holy Spirit as channels through whom he performs signs and wonders and healings. And Paul makes it clear that the purpose of these ministries is, and I'm quoting now from Ephesians 4, 12 to 13, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of of the fullness of Christ. That's the purpose of those listed ministries. And Paul emphasises the fact that no one person, no one person could carry out all these tasks. Therefore, specific people are anointed for specific roles in the church. Back to 1 Corinthians 12, 29 to 30, he says, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And the implied answer, of course, is no. They don't. Because one person can't do everything. It's team. It's a team thing. And we all carry out different tasks. Now back to verse 7 in chapter 12. And there we find out that Paul spells out the specific reason why the grace gifts of the Spirit are manifested. As with the anointed ministries that we've just looked at, it's purely for the benefit of others in the church. So in verse 7 we read, and I quote, "...now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good." That's what it means. For the common good means for everyone in the church. That's why they're given. In other words, the gifts are not given to edify the person who manifests them. The person who manifests them is simply a channel through whom they're being manifested. It's not manifested for them. It's manifested for the person who is receiving them. In other words, the congregation. They're manifested to build up the congregation. They're given, in other words, for the benefit of the church. That's what the gifts of the Spirit are for. Not the channel. So, they're not to be ministered for personal gain or advantage. So you wouldn't want me coming up to you and say, hey, I've got a word for you, what's it worth? I've got a word from God for you, what's it worth? See, not for gain or advantage. Now, Seemed that this kind of thing was even happening. So, these gifts in all their diversity should be operated harmoniously, not discordantly, and they should result in beneficial relationships between the members of the church. So, having said all that about natural ministries, natural gifts that are anointed, and how they become spiritual gifts as a result, having looked at how the Spirit has anointed people doing various ministries and what that's about, now we come to look at the actual nine gifts of the Spirit. And these are listed there in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 10. And when we look at them, we see there's nine of them, and we see that we can identify three groups of three. And Paul simply lists them without explaining what they mean. And this suggests that either he felt that they were self-explanatory or that the Corinthians already knew what each one of them entailed or involved. So the interpretation of them that I am giving here stems from my own personal research and my own personal experience. So the first group we can call the power to know. The power to know. And that is made up of the gifts of discernment, knowledge and wisdom. Discernment, knowledge and wisdom, the power to know. Now this grouping is about information which is supernaturally revealed. It's about the mind of Christ being manifested through a believer. Facts received in this way would be impossible to know, humanly speaking. And they're usually revealed so that the believer or the believers or the church as a whole may be helped, may be guided in decision-making, may be protected, may be reassured or pray more effectively. So let's look at them one by one now. The gift of discernment, which Paul describes as, quote, distinguishing between spirits, unquote, could be described as a supervisory gift. A supervisory gift given to keep the enemy's influence from causing serious problems in the church. And the gift of discernment enables the believer to know what is motivating a person or driving a situation. It enables the believer to discern the source of the gift itself or the source of what is happening. In other words, whether it's demonic, in other words, it's counterfeit, because Satan has counterfeits, whether it's of the flesh. In other words, it's coming from human thinking or whether it truly is of the spirit. It's from God or of God. So the gift of discernment enables that to happen. So you can say, how it's a protective gift. So the church isn't going to be led astray. It enables the believer to discern the presence of an evil spirit. It enables the believer to discern the source of a spiritual problem which is being experienced by a person or even by the church, so that deliverance may be brought to the person through exorcism, or the influence might be delivered to the church. And so the church that's being bound by this satanic influence may be released from that. The gift of discernment shows what that influence is. Now, a good example of this is in the life of Paul when he discerned what was driving the fortune-telling slave girl in Philippi. if you remember that? Back in Acts 16, 16 to 18, we mentioned uh, that in an earlier study. And you'll remember that he exorcised the evil spirit on the spot. Quote, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. (coughs) She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned round and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. So, spirit of discernment. He discerned what was the source of what the girl was doing, and he dealt with it. So, what about the gift of knowledge then? The gift of knowledge is a supernatural revelation of facts a supernatural revelation of facts. It may be a specific word which is given to one individual to help them personally, or a supernatural revelation of a problem or difficulty affecting a person or affecting the church. An example of this which affected Paul himself is the dream Ananias had, in which the facts of Paul's conversion, location, Attitude and needs were revealed to Ananias, Acts 9 11 to 12, and verse 17. And we looked at that in study one. But perhaps the most powerful recorded example in Paul's life happened during a storm when aboard the boat, taking him to stand trial in Rome. And we read in Acts 27 22 to 26, quote, But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island." And we talked about that in study too. It's a specific word of knowledge comes to Paul in that situation. But a word of knowledge equally can be given to a person for another person or for the church. It's a supernatural revelation of facts. Now, what about the gift of wisdom then? The gift of wisdom is a supernatural revelation of the mind and purpose of God which enables the believer or the church to know how to apply a word of knowledge that's been given. So, the church is given a word of knowledge about something. The next question is, okay, how do we take this forward? How do we apply this? The gift of wisdom (coughs) is revelation about how that should be done. Or, it can be knowledge of how to proceed in a particular situation. In the church or in a person's life, for example. And an example of this latter one, how to proceed in a particular situation, from the life of Paul, would be his vision of the man from Macedonia. After the Spirit had previously blocked his attempt to enter into Bithynia, we read in Acts 16, 9-10, quote, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We saw about that in study two. And any of those, if you want more details, if you look at um, my book, Bit Park Players of the Bible Act 2, you will see more detail of all those incidents in there. So that's the first group, the power to know. Now we come to the second group, the power to do. (coughs) And this group consists of the gifts of healing, miracles and faith. Healing, miracles and faith, the power to do. And this grouping is about bringing God's power into the lives of people or into situations to change them. It's about changing situations. So, the gifts of healing are manifestations of the Spirit working through compassionate human channels to people in need, bringing healing to them. As a result, a supernatural action occurs in their body, or in their mind, or in their soul, or any combination of those three, which can't be explained medically. The healing may be instantaneous, but more often, in my experience certainly, comes gradually over a period of time. Now notice that Paul uses the word gifts, with an S on the end. It's plural, it's not gift of healing, it's gifts of healing. This is to emphasise the fact that there are indeed different gifts of healing given by the Spirit to meet different needs. So it's a gift for each need. Paul himself received a gift of healing through Ananias, if you remember. Back to Acts 9:17 to 18 and I quote, Placing his hands on Saul, he, that's Ananias, said, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. So, Ananias is a gift of healing to Saul, as he was then. The Spirit also used Paul himself to bring healing to people. One example of this occurred in Lystra, Acts 14, 8 to 10. And there we read, quote, There sat a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Another example took place on the island of Malta where Paul was shipwrecked. Publius was, as Acts 28.7-9 tells us, and I quote, the chief official of the island. His father was ill in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this happened, the rest of those on the island who were ill came and were cured. So Paul's used in this gift on those occasions. So that's gifts of healing. What about the gift of miracles then? Gift of miracles or miraculous powers is often called signs and wonders and they are manifestations of God's power other than healing. So a miracle is sudden and immediate and is performed to meet a particular need. The Spirit manifested this gift through Paul on a number of occasions. For example, when he was faced with considerable opposition from a group of Jews in Iconium. In Acts 14.3 we read, quote, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. This also occurred at other places in Galatia. If you look at Galatians 3.5, as Paul and Barnabas related to the council of Jerusalem. Quote, from Acts 15.12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And Luke also records that in Ephesus... Quote, "God did extraordinary miracles through Paul." That's Acts 19:11. Paul himself writes about how God performed signs and wonders through him." So in Romans 15, 18 and 19 we read, quote, "I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God." And 2 Corinthians 12.12, quote, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Now sometimes we find that more than one of the gifts is manifested in conjunction with others. A good example of this is when Paul was in Paphos on the island of Cyprus, Acts 13.6-12. You may remember, right back in study one, we looked at this. There, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, wanted to hear more from Paul. One of his attendants, named Bar-Jesus, also known as Elemas, quote, a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elemas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So there we've got, in this incident, you've got the gift of discernment, you've got the gift of knowledge, you've got the gift of miracles, and the gift of faith, all working together to deal with that particular situation. What about the gift of faith then? Now the gift of faith is not saving faith nor is it the fruit of faithfulness. Rather, the gift of faith is a special gift given to combat unusual circumstances, such as, for example, extreme trial, satanic attack, as with Elemas, or an impossible situation. So the gift of faith is a sudden, instantaneous, Surge of faith usually occurring, happening in a crisis. It may also happen with praying with someone for healing. You suddenly feel this particular surge of faith within you as you're praying for that person. Now, given all the hardships, sufferings and satanic attacks Paul had to endure, he must have experienced this gift being manifested through him many times, such as, we've already recalled, the whole shipwreck scenario, and when the viper, quote, fastened itself on his hand. That's Acts 27, 18 to, to 44, and 28, 3 to 6. So there we have got examples of the gifts of the Spirit, and examples of them actually happening in the life of Paul. So the third group of gifts of the Spirit comes under the heading, The Power to Say. The Power to Say. And this group consists of the gifts of tongues, interpretation and prophecy. So this grouping is about gifts of speech, it's about gifts of speech given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be spoken out in public in the fellowship of the church. And it seems from what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 14 verses 12 to 19 that he was used by the Spirit in manifesting all three of these gifts. So... Thinking about what we were looking at earlier, Paul obviously was used to being used in all of the gifts of the Spirit that he talks about here, all the nine gifts. Now, it's important to understand that the gift of tongues that Paul refers to here, which requires an interpretation, is completely different from the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the Jewish and Gentile Pentecost that we read about in Acts 2, verse 4, and Acts 10, verse 46, of which speaking in tongues is an evidence. I find, as I go around, there's a lot of confusion about this, so let's not be confused, let's be clear that this is not the baptism in the Spirit. No interpretation was required on those days of Pentecost because The people were speaking and singing in tongues in personal worship, prayer, and praise of God as inspired by the Spirit. And what happened, of course, was all the people that had come to Jerusalem from all over the empire at that time recognised their own tongue in this worship shimozzle that was all going on. Um, But they were not having... What was, it was not one message given by one person being interpreted for the benefit of the crowd. Completely different. It was their expression of personal praise and worship to God that was being inspired by the Spirit. So it's completely different. This manifestation of what I call praise tongues, and that, you might find that an helpful way to think of it, praise tongues does not happen for the common good as we saw gifts of the Spirit do in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. It doesn't happen for the common good. It has the effect, the baptism in the Spirit, speaking in tongues in personal worship, it has the effect of edifying the worshipper, not the church, not the church congregation. As uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 2 and 4, and I quote, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. So can you see the complete difference between praise tongues and the gift of tongues? By contrast then, the purpose of the gift of tongues is to bring a message To the church, and therefore, obviously, needs to be followed by the interpretation, or nobody's going to understand what the message is. Now, as with praise tongues, message tongues are spoken in a language unknown to the believer under the inspiration of the Spirit. So, those two things are common between praise and message tongues. But you get the other distinctions that praise tongues edifies the worshipper and is part of the person's praise and worship given to God. The message in tongues is for the church and needs to be followed by an interpretation and it's for the benefit not of the channel giving it, but of the people hearing it. So there's distinctions there. So we didn't want the the congregation left confused and baffled rather than edified and ministered to, that's why we need the gift of interpretation. And that's usually given by another believer. Usually, although the giver of the message in tongues should also seek God for the interpretation. Chapter 14 and verse 13 says, and I quote, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Because otherwise it's of absolutely no use at all to the congregation. Notice that Paul uses the word interpretation, not translation. An interpretation is not a translation. The interpretation, given under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives the meaning of the message in tongues, not a word-by-word word translation. So I suppose, in a way, it's a bit like the, reading the Message Bible rather than the NIV. You know, you're getting the flavour of it, but you're not getting the literal translation. Also notice that Paul places the gift of tongues and interpretation last in his list. But that's only because they were the last of the gifts of the Spirit to be given to God's people, not because they're the least important. The other seven are all in evidence in the Old Testament tongues and interpretation are not in evidence in the Old Testament. All the other seven that we've looked at are. So that's the only reason tongues and interpretation come last. Some, Some scholars have made out that they're last because they're least important. In my opinion, for what it's worth, certainly not true. Now we come to the gift of prophecy. So tongues and interpretation sort of go together like a horse and carriage, you know. The gift of prophecy... Is where the believer speaks the mind of God by the inspiration of the Spirit and not from their own thoughts. So it's a message directly from God through this believer to the church, not having come from their own thoughts. So inspired preaching cannot be said to be the gift of prophecy because preaching's come from, uh, from your, your own thoughts. All right, it might be anointed by the Spirit. As you give and have a, have a great effect, but it's not prophecy. It may be a prophetic word, meaning it's speaking out what God wants to say to the people, but it's not the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is God speaking directly to the congregation in their own language through a believer, forthtelling what God is saying. Forthtelling, telling out, not to be confused with foretelling, predicting the future. And the purpose of the prophecy is the same as that of the interpretation. To edify or exhort or encourage or beseech or rebuke or comfort or bless or challenge or strengthen the people of God or any combination of those. So that's the power to say tongues, interpretation and prophecy. Now we come to a section of the letter which at first sight appears to have nothing to do with the gifts of the Spirit. Because in this section, one body, many parts, verses 12 to 26, in this section Paul pleads for the unity of the body, as each diverse part with its particular ministry recognises its need of all the others. You'll be familiar with this passage no doubt you know the eye needs the foot and so on interesting you see where Paul's put it he deliberately includes this passage straight after his list of the nine gifts to emphasize that this same principle applies to the gifts of the spirit and indeed to all ministries within the church namely that no particular gift ability or ministry is superior to to any other. They all have their role to play in edifying the believers and they all need one another. Paul's insistent that this be understood so that the church will benefit from this diversity within unity and not be torn apart by disunity as it was been doing in Corinth. And then to our greater amazement, we see what the next passage is. So we've had the nine gifts of the Spirit. We've now had this iron foot thing in the gifts of the Spirit. And now we've got 1 Corinthians 13, which we all know is called about the the chapter of love. The gifts of the Spirit, you see, are to be ministered in the spirit of love, which Paul describes In 1 Corinthians 12, 31, as, and I quote, the most excellent way, the most excellent way. So the gifts of the Spirit are to be ministered in the spirit of love, not in the spirit of one-upmanship, as was the case in Corinth. So Paul emphasises and underlines this by deliberately placing his chapter on the subject of love, chapter 13, and its vital importance in the life of the church between his teachings about the gifts of the Spirit in chapters 12 and 14. Now note that this love chapter is not given in the context of marriage. I'm sorry to shatter your illusions, those of you who had this read at your wedding. It was nothing to do with marriage. <laughs> marriage he wrote about earlier in chapter 7. He didn't put it there. He puts it here. Although, of course, we know it's frequently quoted in that situation in a sentimental way, um, which was never Paul's original intention. He writes it to deal with this and other issues that were plaguing the church in Corinth, due in large part to their lack of, to their immaturity and lack of love for each other, which we've already noted in previous studies. Now, Paul begins with these very significant words which emphasise that the gifts of the Spirit are to be ministered in the spirit of love. So, 1 Corinthians 13:1 and 2, quote, "'If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels,' And do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I make an unpleasant noise in the ears of God and the ears of spiritual spirit-filled people in the congregation, because they'll discern it. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, you see how he's using the different gifts of the Spirit here, But do not have love, I am nothing. Now Paul then extends this love principle to other situations too. So he goes on in verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So it's not just the gifts of the Spirit he's saying, it's everything that we're doing, all the things that we would consider, oh, I'm doing a good thing here. Yes, but if you're not doing it in love, if you're just doing it for show, you know, or to get praise from people, you're not doing it in the right attitude. Paul's looking for ministry with love. For ministry with love, which enriches the whole church. And that's what was not happening in Corinth. And that's why... Paul goes on quite strongly about it. The Corinthians were impatient with each other during worship. They were envious of each other's ministries. They were arrogant about their own ministries. They were dishonouring to others during the love feasts. If you remember, we talked about that. They were self-centred, In their attitudes, they were boasting about their sin, and they were even suing one another. Now Paul points out that adopting the spirit of love would deal with all these issues. So he goes on in verses 4 to 7, quote, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, It does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So you see, in these verses, Paul shows the Corinthians what they are like and what they should be like. What they are like and what they should be like. So obviously they were being impatient, unkind, they were envying, they were boasting, they were being proud and so on. So he goes through it all and he says, if we can adopt the spirit of love, all these issues can be dealt with. And using the examples of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, Paul goes on to point out that the gifts of the Spirit, which the Corinthians so highly prized, especially tongues, would not go on forever, but guess what would go on forever? Love. It's love that will go on forever. Because he says in verses 8 to 10, quote, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So he's saying that such gifts will no longer be necessary when Christ comes again and everything becomes clear. Until then we can know only partly. And we don't always understand or see everything properly. As he says in verse 12, For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. But in the meantime, Paul, you can sense this longing that he has for the Corinthians to become mature in Christ. This is a lot of the problem with Corinth, immaturity. He so desperately wanted them to become mature in Christ and stop behaving and thinking like children. So in verse 11 he says, When I was a child, I taught like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. In other words, when I became mature, These are the things past. And he's lamenting. You can can read between the lines. He's saying to them, look, you're still like children. You're still immature. And if you look back at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2, he laments, quote, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, and this is the killer bit to me, Indeed, you are still not ready. What? What a sad picture! It's like looking at a church full of babies with milk bottles of milk and dummies. And he says, you know, you can see see Paul thinking. That's what I think of when I think of you lot. I see a load of babies still needing milk, still having to have dummies, and all the rest of it, because you're not growing up. You're not growing in Christ. Or a lot of your problems are from your immaturity. You need to get more mature in Christ. I say a sad picture. But of course, the big challenge with which we conclude is is it a picture of us? You know? How mature am I in Christ? Have I moved on? Or am I still doing all these childish things? Food for thought.